Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Once more, I will tell you that we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So welcome. You see, I I got back to the morning shows. This is just a little easier for me, and now that I'm not sleeping through my alarms, uh, (laughs) it's much better. But, um, you know, we've been talking about a number of things over the past year, a number of different subjects, you know, we've kind of touched on so many different categories, so so many different genres, and, you know, what I would do is encourage you guys to go back and look into the archives. You can find the archives on Blog Talk Radio as well as iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and a number of other places. So I would encourage you to do so. Go back, take a listen to some of the old shows, and, you know, you'll see how much progress we've made over the last several years. And so last week's show, you know, that was interesting. That was quite interesting. I would encourage you to go and take and listen to it and enjoy it. You know, take what you will. And so it's been a lot of things happening, you know, not just over the past week, but over the past year, two, three, four years. And it's a lot of things that need to be brought to attention. And so before I move forward, you know, with the show, basically, you know, I want to tell you guys to go out and look for Justice for Families, hashtag JFF. Um, BLM Chicago is doing their fundraiser for their Just for Family project. And so for those who aren't familiar with it, the JFF project is, families that have been affected, impacted by state-sanctioned violence, what they do is they, you know, they they embrace those families and they encourage them, you know, different activities over the year, but also, you know, individual contact with them on a daily basis if need be. And so they're doing a fundraiser for that particular project. So I would ask you guys to go out, take a look for it, and the hashtag is BLMshy, and also hashtag JFF, F is in Frank. So JFF and BLMshy, go out. They're doing a fundraiser. Um, Send a few dollars their way because they are doing the work. This is not one of those situations in which you hear people talking about doing the work and you never see any results. You'll see the results of that all over the place, and I know for a fact that they are doing that work. In addition to that, another hashtag, Ronnie Man, R-O-N-N-I-E-M-A-N. They are doing a fundraiser. I know Christmas is next week. But it goes beyond Christmas. This is helping families in need throughout the year. So Dorothy Holmes, in conjunction with Black Lives Matter Chicago, they are running that fundraiser. 
So, again, it's not just for the holidays. This is for all year round. So not only will you see toys on there, you'll see clothing items and things like that. Drop off what you can. So if you go under that hashtag, you'll find um, the drop-off locations. So there you go. All right. So, like I said, it has been so much happening and so many things flying under the radar that, you know, I know some of you caught it because I see it in a news feed. But, you know, again, it's it's mind-boggling. And like I said last week, I feel as though I am a captive participant in a reality show, in a reality television show. This has been just so surreal, you know, what we've had to live through and what we are currently living through. And so what's so interesting about it is Raina and I had a very long conversation about this yesterday. And, you know, I was talking about feeling as though, you know, I was living in a reality TV show. And she was like, yeah, it's like we've turned into an Ayn Rand America. I'm like, exactly. I'm like I said that last week on the show. So, you know, guys, I want you to go and look up Ayn Rand, A-Y-N-R-A-N-D. And I want you to look her up. And, you know, also look up Ayn Rand America. There are several articles out about it. And it would be to your benefit to kind of have an idea as to where we're going politically and culturally in this country. And for some people, you're like, I don't want to read about that. I get it. So, you know, I'm going to try to break it down as much as I possibly can. And during that conversation, you know, Raina brought up, you know, like that, you know, that she feels like these are Orwellian times. And, you know, George Orwell, 1984, Orwellian times. And, you know, of course, I agreed because, I mean, even if you all go back to the show that I did after the RNC, when Donald Trump gave his acceptance speech to be the Republican nominee for president of the United States, I was talking about it then. And, I mean, it, it wasn't so much the words that scared me. You know, the words, yes, they made, they made an impact. It had an effect. Trust that. But it was the imagery, and I would encourage anybody to go back and watch Donald Trump's acceptance speech, and you will understand why it's so, it was problematic for me. Others, not so much. Maybe they like it. You like it, I love it. I get it. But no. So it's, it's a lot. It's a lot that's happening the next four years should prove to be quite interesting uh-huh. yeah it should be it should prove to be quite interesting um next sunday which happens to be christmas day um i'm going to do another show on the branded white series and we're going to talk about diversity panels not being social justice work or advocacy and it's like i've been talking about that for the past few months i've been pushing that show back pushing it back And I just really want to get it out of my queue because it's a lot to talk about, but a lot of this old hat, if you will. But, you know, we'll cover some misconceptions and some misnomers. And like I said, I'm just sitting back 
and I am, you know, I don't want to say amused because it's not funny. And I don't want to say perplexed because there's nothing confusing about it. You know, you have people out here who feel as though by sitting on one or two diversity panels and maybe writing one or two blogs that they've done, you know, the work of social justice. Now, depending on the person and depending on, you know, um, their status or their stature in life, I get that. I understand that because it's like, you know, again, you have people out here who are disabled, who aren't able to, you know, go out and do some of the more physical work. That's fine. I get that. But I'm talking about people who are 100% able-bodied. And, again, going out here doing work will not jeopardize their livelihood because many of them are self-employed. Some of them, you know, their businesses may suffer. So I can understand them pulling back. But for others, there is no excuse. And and I'm just sitting back. And And when I say there is no excuse, what I'm talking about is you have people out here, namely white people, who are, you know, tagging Black Lives Matter, they're tagging, you know, um, say her name, they're tagging, you know, all of these different hashtags and campaigns that, you know, women of color and people of color, you know, have, you know, moving right now. You know, these campaigns are moving forward. They're breaking boundaries. And, you know, I mean, they're breaking barriers and basically pushing boundaries. And you have people trying to co-opt it. You have some white folks out here attempting to co-opt those movements. And what's so interesting about it is more than a few of them are problematic in a number of ways in which they've spoken about race. Um, races that they have aligned themselves with. You know, some of these people, even if they call themselves, you know, pushing away and and disasso- dis- disassociating themselves or dissociating themselves from that individual, they still support some of what, you know, these people have to say in regards to, you know, racism, xenophobia, sexism, And so it's so interesting when I know some of these particular white people stand for, and I'm looking at their tweets, and I see black, you know, Black Lives Matter all over the place and all of these different, you know, campaigns and movements that are taking place in America by people of color. And when these, some of these particular people have no respect for people of color, and what they're doing is trying to raise their profile and 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 trying to get people of color to align themselves with them. And so this is what I'm talking about when you know when I refer to solidarity as for white women. You know, when Mickey Kendall came up with that, you know, it it, it was very true then and it's very true now. Especially when we know half of these white women voted for Donald Trump. And, you know, it's just 
so much behind all of that that, you know, I definitely want to do a show specifically on white people, you know, attempting to co-op black movements. You know, you have a lot of white people out here that, that, you know, they say that they're civil rights activists. Okay, there are a number of different civil rights, and, you know, I get that. But they want to invoke the name of, you know, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, to make their point. Yet some of the most racist things I've ever heard have come either from them or people that they're associated with. So you need to keep an eye out for that. And, you know, we definitely will be sounding the alarm. You know, like I said, I'll call people out by name. You know, I'm just sitting back and I'm watching, but your time is coming. The whole thing is interesting, sitting back and watching it and, you know, putting the information out there so that people will know what to look for so that you won't get caught up. And so it's just, it's it's been interesting. You know, when you get a chance to sit back and pay attention and just kind of turn some other things off so that you can kind of focus on one specific, you know, topic, you know, that you're researching. And, um, yeah, buddy. So, anyway... I'm going to move on from that, but it's a lot of things, you know, that are happening. So one thing that I do want to talk about, what the hell is going on with the atheists in these billboards? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, there's an organization called American Atheists, all right? And so a few years ago, they put out a billboard or several billboards. Um, One was in a Muslim community. One was in a Jewish community. They sat down with leaders of those particular communities. And together, they decided, you know, which billboard and the language would be less inflammatory and and more respectful to their communities. And then those were put up. In the black community, they did not sit down with anyone in the black community before putting a billboard up. And, you know, as I've stated, the billboard said, slaves, obey your masters, which was, you know, one of the quotes from the Bible. And it caused a major uproar in the black community, not only, you know, the black community in general in in Philadelphia, where the billboard was placed but also within the black atheist community. And so subsequent to their, you know, putting up that billboard, they spoke with a couple of so-called leaders in the black atheist community who basically gave them their blessings. And, you know, what was so interesting is, you know, many of us came out against that billboard. I was one of them from the onset who had a problem with it. Well, apparently they didn't learn their lesson because now they have another billboard up on I-20 celebrating an atheist Christmas. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, you know, many atheists do not celebrate Christmas. 
you know, and some of them do because, again, they have children and relatives and, you know, they they see it as relatively benign, right? So I, I understand that. And it's been a big old debate on the Internet, especially in some of these circles, whereas, you know, you have some atheists excoriating other atheists for celebrating Christmas. And that's a personal choice. If they want to celebrate Christmas, let them celebrate Christmas. That has nothing to do with you. And so, you know, again, but, I mean, just hearing atheist Christmas, you know, isn't that kind of an oxymoron there? But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to move on with this. But what I find interesting is if you go and you take a look at the billboard, basically – I'm looking at the photo, and I'm saying to myself, what the hell is is going on, you know? And so it's, it's really interesting. Um, I have a problem with it. I have a problem with the billboard. I have a problem with the photograph that they attach to the billboard. So... I need to go and do some more research on this because I don't know if this is a stock photo or someone sat for this photo, but regardless, it's a bit problematic. Not a bit. Take the bit out. It's problematic for a number of reasons because, again, you know, I talk about imagery a lot and what we see you know, it does have a bearing on what we believe. And so what's so interesting is I read an article here about it, and they say that they have two goals. The first is to advocate for the separation of church and government. And what's so interesting about that is I have seen very, very little from a number of atheist organizations and actually, you know, working toward the separation of church and government. I see more churches, you know, filing these lawsuits, you know, particularly the Mormon church and the SDAs. They're filing more lawsuits for the separation of church and government. And so, you know, again, it's it's interesting because they're saying that they want to make sure that it's easier for atheists to be open and honest about what they believe and don't believe in the in the United States. So, you know, another phrase for that is normalizing atheism. And so, okay, I get that. Okay. You know, don't have a problem with that specifically. Okay. And so, you know, six billboards that that they've launched around the country. And so it's just, it's, interesting, you know, the impact that it's having on people. And I know some people, they're like, yeah, well, they just passed the bill saying that being a non-believer or an atheist, that we should be protected. So I guess they're trying to get us declared a protected class. And so it's really interesting. You know, you have people, white people in the atheist community who are basically stating that, you know, the oppression that they're experiencing as atheists is akin 
to the oppression that black people, you know, <laughs> lived under. And what's so interesting is that when you speak with some of these people, they will claim that we are living in a post-racial America, that they're colorblind, and black people are not oppressed. And the things that we're bringing up is because we're whiners and complainers, but they're not. And so it's just it's really interesting because many of the people in this community, they will not even talk about the discrimination and the racism, the sexism, the xenophobia that's being experienced and in, in more by people in the atheist community. And this is why I can't get behind when they put these billboards and things in, in black communities. And I know some people are like, well, Kim, you were on a few, you know, a few billboards. And yes. I was on a few billboards, but again, if you go back and you you can see this show has been here since 2011, I've made my position very clear, very, very clear. So, I mean, someone Googled my name and you listen to these shows, you know exactly where I stand as opposed to the ambiguity and the doublespeak that you'll get from a number of, you know, people of color in the atheist community. You know, many of them don't want to shake the tree or rock the boat, but they need to because it's just so interesting because I just, man, let me tell you, we're in for a major culture war. You know, it's already, the lines have already been drawn. But, again, this this is going to be interesting, and especially with some of the rhetoric that you hear coming out of the atheist community, more so white atheist mouths in regards to Muslim and the Islamophobia that's, you know, that's being spouted all over the place. So, you know, again, I want you guys to go out, pay attention, do some research, um, atheism is becoming more mainstream for those of you who are not familiar with this. And there are more and more people coming out as atheists, open atheists, because it used to be a time whereas being a, an atheist or an agnostic or a humanist or a deist in the number of other categories in which it was shameful. And so people would hide their belief systems and, you know, believe it or not, you have a lot of non-religious people who attend church regularly. And there are many different reasons for that. And for those of you who are familiar with me, I am not anti-church. I am not anti-theist. And so, you know, we'll talk about this a little more. I didn't want to focus a lot of time on this today. But this is my way of saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to address this. And, um, you know, and I wanted to make sure that I put everything on the table because, again, yes, I've been on some of the billboards, but at the same time, I've maintained my stance. I've maintained my frustration, if you will, with this community because it has not really made any major strides in regards to dealing with the internal racism, sexism, 
Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and even more. So, again, I will continue talking about these communities and putting this information out there until they make a true concerted effort to address these particular issues. And so just wanted to make sure I made myself very, very, very clear because I'm coming straight at you. So there you go. Because I'm just trying to figure out who did you consult with this, this last time? And, you know, I'm looking at this billboard and I'm trying to figure out, you know, you know, are you attempting to antagonize black people, you know, black atheists? Are you all paying attention to this? You know, well, you know, I'm just a little old black girl from the south side of Chicago. So, you know, that is that. And so we're going to move on. But, you know, it's it's a lot of things happening, you know, in this country. And a lot of microaggressions toward people of color and, you know, just outright assaults in some areas. And so for those of you, you know, who've been following um, just different social justice issues in this country, many of you all, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with some of the issues that have been coming out of the school system. And there was a teacher who assigned the students a slave song activity. And so what happened was the teacher was basically um, suspended for about four days so that the school board could investigate this particular issue. And so, you know, this is in Baltimore. And so in, you know, Howard County, I guess there have been a number of racially charged incidents, and they've been investigating it and it was called offensive and out of scope with what they should be teaching, you know. And look this up. I mean, we've seen incidents in which we've had black children who've had nooses tied around their neck during summer camp, and the school system was trying to say that it was not race-related, and just a number of things. I mean, you all have been saying what's happening around this country. And now that Trump is president-elect, you know, people are really (laughs) coming out of the woodwork. And look, when you see these types of injustices, you have to stand up. You have to speak out. It's extremely important that you guys do this. Because otherwise, if nothing is said and, and people are allowed to pass, they're only going to push the envelope even further. And the the problem will get bigger and bigger, and a lot of these people will feel as though they can do these things with impunity. You know, kind of like police killing people in the street. Black people, indigenous people, Latino people, brown people. You have to say something. And so what was interesting, it says that this assignment, you know, to the assignment that was given to the students is that they had, create, they had to create a slave song as a means to learn how language can be used effectively to convey feelings and important messages. 
And so <laughs> the teacher apologized to all the students and, you know, that were given the assignment and their parents, and the assignment has been removed. And, you know, the school system, they were saying some people felt as though they shouldn't have had to apologize and that they were too quick to apologize. You know, I can understand, you know, the discomfort that they felt. But, again, you know, why would this teacher think that this was a great idea? So, anyway, I'm just going to move on from that. I just had to give you just, you know, a current example of what we're dealing with. Another example of what we're dealing with, and, you know, I found this hilarious. There was this video that was posted. And so there was this white guy, and he was wearing black slacks, a white shirt, and a black tie, kind of looking like a Mormon, you know, but I'm not saying he was a Mormon. I don't know. However, basically he was standing on his soapbox, right, you know, in a town square, and I mean that figuratively. And he was talking about how certain races should be slaves. And so, you know, he was, you know, talking about a lot of issues that were important to him. You know, the rest of us, many of us would consider his his rhetoric to be quite racist and abusive. So what happened was when he was giving this speech or making this public announcement, this biker walked up to him, you know, leather vest, got his chain, wearing his jeans, I'm assuming they're Levi's, and and whenever this white guy would open his mouth, the biker would scream no. And so it's one of the most hilarious things that I've ever seen. And so <laughs> I want you guys um, to go and take a look at it, you know, go and watch this video. And, you know, while the video is amusing on one hand, it's very troubling. On the other hand, because this is what we are in for. This is what people feel, you know, that they're, they they feel empowered and emboldened to do these things. Why is that? And so a little bit later, we're going to talk about Dylan Roof and Donald Trump and, you know, how they intersect and how, you know, the environment in which we live, how that produced a Dylan Roof and a Donald Trump, and how this happened and is a result of Barack Obama being the president of the United States. So this is a mirror image. There, This parallels. And so, you know, we'll walk into that a little bit later. But I definitely wanted you guys to know about that. And, um, you know, again, there are many, many issues, many, many examples like this, and I don't have all day to talk about it. So I just wanted to bring those up. And so, you know, again, social justice, social justice issues happening around the country. Um you know, another example, I mean, many of you all may not have heard of Sand Branch, Texas. 
again, Sand Branch, Texas. And so basically it's a community that had been denied water for over 30 years, right? And we're talking about, you know, water rights. And it was an article written by Kirsten West Savali. And it was talking about this historically black community and, you know, how they had been living without water and, you know, how this story had not been told. And, you know, and again, you know, a lot of these stories are pushed to the back on purpose because, you know, the powers that be do not want to talk about it. And again, you know, this is a black community. So, you know, for the most part, they don't care. And, you know, I'm glad that stories like this is, you know, these stories like this are being put out, you know, and pushed to the forefront. And what's so interesting is that Sand Branch is only 14 miles away from Dallas, Texas. And so it was established in 1878 by the Reverend Allen Hawthorne. And he was a former slave from Louisiana. And he and 11 other freedmen, you know, established and founded that city, right? And so basically they have about 80 people that live there. I guess the height, at its height, it had about 500 people. And, you know, they've been fighting all of this. You know, it's a food desert. Um, Many of the people there do not have transportation, and so they have to find a way to to get to the nearest grocery store is seven miles away. And so, you know, I'm going to post this. I really do need to post this. Um, There are a number of issues that are happening there, but, you know, again, there were water rights and why they have not received you know, any type of assistance from the government. And so Project DreamHoss basically is working with them, and their mission is to help the undeserved become self-sufficient through education, economic awareness, and strong community development. And so, again, they're trying to help the people in that community, you know, uh, achieve a better quality of life. So I'm going to post that later on today. But I said all of that to say this, because, of course, you know, this was, you know, leading me into another um, talking point, if you will. For those that aren't aware, the House GOP has closed the investigation into the Clint water crisis. Let that marinate for a minute. So, again, you're congressional Republicans. They've closed that year-long investigation. Um, It says it faults the state officials as well as the EPA that, you know, basically contaminated the water for over 100,000 or close to 100,000 residents. And so, you know, I want you guys to go out, and I want to encourage you to write letters, call your representative, call your senators, ask them what the hell is going on, because it has not been fixed. The drinking water is still tainted. And so, again, you know, who's paying the cost for that? The governor is still in, you know, in power. 
<laughs> and we know that they had stripped all the power away from the mayor, you know, of Flint. So, again, go out, do some research, and, you know, this is not a direct segue, but just like they stripped the mayor of Flint of her powers, you know, that is what's been happening over in North Carolina. I'm not sure if you all are keeping up, but the Republican governor lost the election to a Democrat. And what they've done in North Carolina is they've stripped power away from the incoming Democrat governor. And some of those powers they took from the Democrat governor and they've given to the Republican lieutenant governor. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more. But again, you know, pay attention. You know, where is our damn sit-in for this? I'm just asking questions, right? And so, again, just wanted to bring that to your attention to see, you know, are you paying attention? Are you listening? Are you watching? You know, which is what brought me to this Branded White series, because we're going to be talking about all of this for the next four years, but today's show title is Empathy is for White People. And so the show notes, basically, we please join us as we discuss double standards for black people and why empathy is for white people. This is not limited to black people in the United States. We have seen these injustices that have been implemented worldwide. However, America just elected Donald Trump, and the world is watching with bated breath and bated hooks for what seems to be shaping up as a roller coaster ride that we can't stop. We can't slow down and are now a captive rider with flashbulbs catching every painful moment for the whitewashed history that it will bring forth. The cowboy politics that will come from the Trump administration is anybody's guess, and unfortunately, people of color will suffer. Buckle up because you ain't getting off this ride without a fight. And this is what we're facing. This is what we're dealing with right now. And so there's so many different things that I want to talk about, and I'm going to try to keep the pace up today, you know, and not try and, you know, basically just try to cover a number of things while also encouraging you guys to go out and to do some research. And so yesterday, you know, on my call with Raina, you know, we were talking about a number of issues. And so, you know, one of the issues we talked about or that was kind of brought up was, How many wars are we involved in? How many wars is the United States involved in? And, you know, Raina was like, it's over 10. And so I had to go and look this up. And I want you guys to go and look it up as well. Because one of the things that I was taught in school is... You know, when the economy is depressed, generally countries go into war to stimulate the economy. And if we are involved in over 10 wars, this economy is fucked up. 
and we kind of know this. And so last week I was talking about the economy and on a macro level how we're doing pretty pretty damn good. You know, we're almost at 20000 with the Dow. You know, stocks are up. Hedge fund managers are happy. Investors are happy. Main Street, not so much. That's more of a micro level, right? And so, you know, I just find it interesting about the priorities in this country. And, you know, there was an article that was released a while ago. I'm going to have to go and find it. But it was talking about how the wealthy people in this country, how socialism works wonderfully for them and, you know, and and is implemented in this country for the wealthy. But for those who are working class and poor, you know, they get capitalism. And we all know that capitalism is directly tied to racism, as well as a number of other isms and phobias or obias, right? And so, you know, it's really interesting, you know, watching the news and the stance or the narrative that's being pushed by the news in regards to Russia. And so I just want to make sure that I make my position perfectly clear. Yes, I agree that Russia, you know, overstepped its authority, if you will, but you know how the Russians, you know, hacked into systems. I'm not saying that that didn't happen. What I'm saying is that that is one factor in this equation. Voter suppression is a major factor in this equation, as well as a number of other things. And so I just want to make sure that, again, that all of these issues are addressed. And for people to not get caught up, And a lot of this McCarthyism and this red scare, you know, we need to pay attention, but there's more to this than, you know, than what most people realize. And, you know, you have a lot of people focusing on just a number of things, which, you know, kind of takes the attention away from other things that we do need to talk about. Because, again, with the voter suppression that took place across this country, this is how we ended up with the, you know, the shit fest that we're seeing in North Carolina. You know, North Carolina and Texas were the two first states that passed laws immediately after the Supreme Court struck Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And so what I'm trying to do is is get you all to, you know, kind of tie these things together. They intersect. And it's important that you understand this. And so while talking to Raina, she was talking about Sweden and how over the, yes, Sweden, right, and how the towns and villages are being told to brace for a possible Russian attack. Sweden, you guys. And when she told me that, I was just 
floored. And I had to go and, and look this up. And I encourage you guys to go and pay attention. Go go and look this up. And it's amazing because, you know, Sweden of all places, you know, who would have thunk it? But, um, yeah, it's, it's important, you know, so now they're making preparations for a threat of war and conflict. And, again, you know, here we go with Russia again, you know, in issues that are being put forth out there. But, yeah, it's important. Pay attention to these things. Pay attention. But we can chew gum and walk at the same time. So you can pay attention to a number of different topics. And so, you know, look it up, y'all, straight up. Look it up. Pay attention to what's happening. And, you know, I'm just laughing because it's so much happening. And, you know, we talk about how Latinos are being scapegoated in America. It's not just the Mexicans, the South Americans, Central Americans, Hell, they're going after the Haitians and Africans, too, in this country. Yet, you know, there has been no real conversation of note, I'll put it that way, about the illegal immigrants from Europe. So we will be talking about that as well. But basically, not only just in America, you know, you, you hear me talking about this white supremacist, you know, ultra-right conservative movement that's happening globally. You all need to pay attention. Read. What happens over there does affect what happens here. And I hear a number of people, oh, well, what's happening over there doesn't have a bearing on us over here. Yes, it does. And what happens here affects everybody else. Like I said, if America sneezes, the rest of the world jumps. You need to understand that. And so what's happening is, you know, we have a scapegoating of immigrants happening worldwide. I just want that to sink in. It's not just here in the United States. These immigrants, you know, they're feeling it worldwide. Why? And there are a number of reasons why. You know, my main issue today is I want you guys to pay attention and to see what's happening. And again, to stand up for what is right. And so, again, you know, you have these so-called populist movements happening all over the world. And many of them have veered to the right. And we spoke briefly about Austria last week, you know, rejecting, you know, that conservatism. It's only for a minute. It's just a matter of time. You know, for those that are interested in what's happening in France, go look up the National Front over there in Great Britain. Look up Brexit. Pay attention to what has been happening you know, pay attention to what's been happening in Italy and Germany. I know some of you all are like, why is she recapping all of this? Because some of you all didn't get it. You didn't catch it. You're not doing your homework. Look this up. You know, they keep claiming that these are populist movements, but mm, mm, 
Some people beg to differ. And so these particular movements, they're picking up steam and picking up support globally. You know, so again, this populism, nativism, you know, is driving a lot of these political um, movements. Pay attention. Pay attention. And especially pay attention to the Islamophobia. Islamophobia. Muslims are being scapegoated left and right. So, again, check out Brexit, you know, the constitutional referendum in Italy, elections in Germany, you know, and, again, the National Front in Europe. You know, in some of these countries, they have had their neo-Nazi marches and protests. Same thing in America. Same thing is happening here. You know, right now, North Carolina is a hotbed of fuckery and foolishness. And it's also one of the last bastions, you know, um, anyway, North Carolina, I'm going to leave that bastion shit alone for right now until I've done a little bit more research on it. But what's happening in North Carolina is even with all of the bills that had been passed to suppress the vote, to, you know, to promote gerrymandering and redistricting, North Carolina still managed to elect a Democratic governor as well as, you know, local elections and state elections. And if you go back, and there's, you know, on Democracy Now!, Reverend William Barber, Mr. Moral Mondays, he talks about it extensively. I I posted the video on my wall So I want you guys to go and watch it, and I'm going to give you some quotes a little bit later, but you need to pay attention because right now, you know, in this country, you have too many people who are just kind of going along to get along, following but not asking questions, following but not utilizing critical thinking skills, and Again, empathy is for white people because with a number of these issues and a number of the apologist articles that I've read as of late, you know, what they're doing is appealing to us to empathize with these working class and poor whites. And we should better understand what they're going through, especially you black people. The blacks should really understand. What the blacks do understand is that these are the same people who are oppressing us. You know, not only the powers that be, but the working class and poor whites. And we'll talk about the higher, you know, we've talked about it on this show, this hierarchy and this Venn diagram of white people. There's white And then there's real white. And so, you know, Dr. Barber, you know, Reverend William Barber, he talks about the hierarchy. And, you know, I'll address that shortly. But, um, you know, the immigrants worldwide, they are not to blame for the terrorism. Those are only a few people, you know, these, these little sects or cults 
you know, just like all white people don't want to be blamed for slavery throughout the world, oh, well, I had nothing to do with that, or my relatives had nothing to do with that, then why are you blaming all Muslims for terrorism? Why are you blaming all blacks for anything and every goddamn thing? Because they're easy targets. You know, in black, the black community is being targeted yet again because Hillary lost. And so last week, you know, I talked about a number of things, but, you know, the main thing I talked about is scapegoating people and how they are trying to throw this Russian hacking into everybody's face and trying to blame Hillary's loss to the hacking as well as the FBI report. Now, I'm not saying that those were not factors. They truly were factors. But what about the voter suppression? You know, I don't hear anybody talking about the 9% of Democrats that voted for Donald Trump. You know, there are a lot of people who stayed at home and refused to vote, refused to come out to vote for Clinton. You know, that's black and white and Latino and brown. It was a number of people. And one of the problems, because I experienced this here in Chicago, I had a hard time registering to vote. So I went to, you know, again, yearly have your vehicle registered and all of that. And I was already registered to vote. But usually when you go to the DMV, you know, you can make sure and double check, you know, that your voting status is still active. And basically, you know, by the time they got done giving me the runaround, I was frustrated. And so I went online and I checked my status and I saw that I was still registered to vote. And ironically, you know, a couple of days later, I received something in the mail and I was like, okay, here it is. Here's my new voter identification card. So I was pretty happy with that. However, not everybody has that luxury because what you all need to understand is that the Internet is not available to everybody. And in many cases, if it's even available in their city, that doesn't mean that they can afford to have it. Some people don't know what to do to go around, so they give up. And a lot of this came into existence when Section 5 was gutted. So this is why you hear me, you know, kind of tying all of these things together because I need for you all to understand, you know, why things are the way that they are now. Now, you know, this has been happening for decades, you know, and and, and I get that. But, you know, you need to understand, you know, how it ties into now. And so, um, you know, what I find so disheartening and disconcerting about the Democrats and their scapegoating of, you know, different groups is basically what I'm hearing when they're telling, you know, saying, well, they forgot, you know, they forgot to appeal to the working class and poor whites. 
So, you know, so basically the Republicans stole your racist, poor white people. Is that what you're tripping about? Because that's what I'm hearing. So you want your racist, white, working class, poor people back without addressing the issues, without condemning a lot of the problematic areas here. Like I said, empathy is for white, period. And so, you know, just go out, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I want you to look up surgical racism. You know, it has something to do with gerrymandering, redistricting, and racism. So, you know, that's extremely important for you all to grasp and to understand what's happening here. And so, like I said, it's not just here in the United States. It's happening all over the world. And right now, immigrants and Muslims are the biggest scapegoats. But, you know, that doesn't let blacks and Africans off the hook. They're being scapegoated as well. And so, you know, again, I've been pointing at white Christian America because over 90% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Let that sink in. Yet we live in a colorblind, post-racial America, according to some of these people. And so what I find interesting is you have some members of the community of faith some of these leaders, you know, calling Donald Trump's cabinet picks a cabinet of bigotry. And now they're stating that we were made for this, we must resist, right? And that includes Dr. Reverend William Barber, you know, and what he's doing. And the reason why I'm focusing on him is because of the work that he's been doing. I've been admiring his work from the onset, you know, with Moral Mondays. I was one of the very first people to report on it, you know, the very first week that he decided that he was going to stand up and resist. I have a lot of admiration for that man and what he's doing and, you know, and how it's impacting the rest of the country. You know, you have different cities and different states basically implementing some of the same tactics to combat the racism and to call it out. And so now you have a coalition of Muslims, Jewish people, left-wing Christians, and others, you know, um, that are joining together. And they had a press conference. And so I'll post that article a little bit later, but let me see here. It's on Think Progress, and the name of the article is Faith Leaders Decry Trump's Cabinet of Bigotry, and it was written by Jack Jenkins. And so this is on Think Progress, if I didn't state that. But yeah, buddy, like I said, we're in trouble. We are definitely in trouble. And um telling you guys what happens to one group, what we allow them to do to scapegoat and to marginalize, you know, in one group, 
It's just a matter of time before they get to us, which is why we must say now and, you know, no and resist right now. So, again, we cannot allow this to happen. And for those that aren't familiar, tomorrow, the 19th, tomorrow is the day that the Electoral College votes on who they want as president of the United States. So let that sink in as well. So, you know, I'm going to get into today's show a little bit, um, even though I've already started. But, you know, I want to talk about a little bit more about why empathy is for white people. And over the years, we've talked about, you know, white-on-white crime. We talked about the double standards. We talked about the cultural um, climate in this country as well as others, but particularly in the United States. Why? Because I'm an American. I live here. I feel it. I experience this. But it does not mean that I do not have empathy for other people in this country as well as in other countries. I read, you know, I read these articles and, you know, these journals, and I do this for a reason, you know, not only to educate myself, but also to be able to bring this information to you guys. And hopefully I'm piquing your interest in such a way that you go out and you do some research and investigation on your own. So when I say research and investigation, I'm not talking about that one dude that went and shot up the pizza spot. None of that. We don't do that (laughs) over here. You know, that's not where I'm coming from. But anyway, I digress. But one of the things that I want to point out is that in America, in our political discourse, our cultural discourse, you know, where the double standard comes in is that, you know, you'll hear people talking about black-on-black crime. You know, Donald Trump had his Black American Day, and so he had Jim Brown, Ray Lewis, Kanye, and, and others, Omarosa, so on and so forth. They were there. And the central theme of the day was, well, what about black-on-black crime, right? And so sitting there reading these articles, getting incensed at what I'm reading and what I'm hearing, and if you go back and you look at Nell Painter's books, there are a number of different books out there which addresses white pain. White Rage. Those are actually two separate books. There is a book called White Pain, and there is a book called White Rage. Look it up. Read some of this stuff. But there is no, you know, the the language that they use for the black community is not the same language that they use in the white community. So this is why when we talk about white-on-white crime, why people get to looking at us sideways because they had never heard of such a thing. Not only had they not ever heard of such a thing, but they never thought of it in that particular context. And so there is no language that's being used that can that, that's the equivalent of the language that's being used on the black community. Why is that? 
Why? I need you guys to think about that. I need for you to go out and do some reading and research to get a better understanding as to why there is no equivalent language used for the white community that's used in the black community or on the black community. And so this is where, you know, it, it, where the research becomes extremely important because, you know, there are a lot of books written by social scientists, if you will, in this country, namely black social scientists, you know, that talk about this specifically. And, you know, it addresses double standards and and how this has been allowed to happen and what type of backlash you receive when you try to flip the script. Now, you all have seen it firsthand in some of the articles. Some of you all have seen it firsthand in your lives. And so what's interesting is I need for you all to understand is that in order for, you know, a lot of this white supremacy to maintain and keep its power and become even stronger is that everything has to stay white-centered. So the whiteness has to be centered. And anytime we have a productive, constructive conversation regarding, you know, anti-black rhetoric and anti-blackness in this country, when you speak to some white people, it always ends up back to being white-centered. Well, what about us? Well, we feel discriminated against as well. Oh, well, we're being oppressed as well. And many of them feel that the discrimination and the oppression that they believe that they feel is greater than the discrimination and racism and the oppression that communities of color have suffered for hundreds of years. Now, I'm trying to understand that to get a better understanding of that. But again, empathy is for white people, right? So they want us to understand their plight while in the same breath telling us that everything that is happening to us, everything that has happened to us was our own fault. And so it made me think, you know, and sometimes, you know, I get to thinking about these things and trying to connect the dots you know, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And like I said last week, there are times when, you know, some people will say, well, you know, some pieces are missing to this puzzle, but there are other times when there are too many pieces. It's a 100-piece puzzle, but it has 120 pieces there. So where did those other 20 pieces come from? Are they interchangeable with other pieces to this puzzle? And if so, if we were to, you know, take those 20 extra pieces and put it in a puzzle, does that change the picture? Does that change the story? 
Does that change the perception? And one thing that I will say is, you know, with the Democrats and they're running around being upset and angry because the Republicans stole their angry white racist voters is, again, the lack of communication, the lack of action in regards to voter suppression speaks volumes. And what I mean by that is, for the most part, from from what I'm gathering, is they don't care. They don't give a damn. And the reason why is because they still have their privileged white skin. Their white privilege will prevail regardless. So it's not happening to them. And these are the very things that we need to question and bring into focus, right? Because here we go again with whiteness being centered and personified. That's the theme, y'all. You understand? And with many white people, especially white Americans, you know, they're entitled and they feel that it is their manifest to be successful, their definition of successful. You know, I saw an article the other day, and some of the white people were complaining about the lack of manufacturing jobs and how those jobs had been sent to Mexico and South America and Central America, and now we have all of this anger and resentment towards these people because they took our jobs, the ones that left, as well as some of the ones that are here in America. And like I said last week, let's be honest, y'all don't want to shuck no fucking corn. You're not trying to pick no damn strawberries, and you sure as hell ain't trying to pick no cotton. Let's be honest. You're not going to do it. And so, again, you have these people who feel entitled to these things, entitled to be successful. And what was interesting in, in one of the articles was there were, you know, there were some people talking, and they, they were saying that some of the white men were embarrassed to say that they were computer programmers. They want to go back and work on the assembly line, back into the manufacturing, because I guess that was a manly man's type of job. You know, that's that's what made him feel virile and, you know, made him stick his chest out and have pride, and that being a computer programmer was embarrassing. Because I want you guys to understand that a lot of these people who lost these jobs are being retrained. Computer programmers, if you, you're programming the right language, can make a shitload of money, especially if you understand, you know, um, if you understand mainframes and some of the original computer languages, right? I don't get it. I don't get it. And so... Go, go, go and look it up. I just, 
for someone like me, I don't understand what's so embarrassing about being a computer programmer. So maybe I missed something somewhere. I'm assuming. You know, because I don't understand this. And as I've stated before, why should I understand the plight of working class and poor whites when they've never given a damn about black people or brown people or red people? As a matter of fact, their function is to continue to oppress these different cultural groups, right? That's part of that social contract, part of that racial contract. There's a book called Racial Contract. Go look that up. Go read it. You can find some of the PDFs for the books that I'm talking about. You can find the PDFs. Just look up the PDF. Even if you go over to Google Books, it will allow you to read a great deal of the material. So, again, you know, there there is no reason for just abject ignorance. And so, again, you know, this this type of thing has me scratching my head. You know, in black America, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention to how the Democrats are scrambling to get their angry races, you know, white support base back while continuing to ignore what's happening in black, brown, red, and yellow communities. And so there is an article that, that's out there, and it talks about, you know, well, the title of the article is What Gave Us Trump, well, Donald Trump Also Gave Us Dylan Roof. And that was written by Jamel Bowie, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But I need for you all to get an understanding of what's happening in North Carolina, right? And so basically what happened is the Republican lawmakers, as I stated earlier, they pretty much stripped the new governor of power. And the new governor is a Democrat and, you know, won by 10,000 votes or so. And so the Republicans that run the, the House as well as the Senate in North Carolina, they're angry, as well as the Republican lieutenant governor. And so there's been, you know, fighting over power. And the Republicans won, right? And basically, you know, they're putting these different bills out here so that, you know, the Democratic governor coming into office won't have any control over the board of election. And, again, some of this power has been given to the lieutenant governor to pay attention. And so William Barber, you know, he was talking about this on Democracy Now! And basically he was talking about the election, the election and how you have a group of extremists, right? And, again, these are the Tea Party extremists, and I'm going to throw this in there too. They're the libertarian extremists as well. And they are losing power, and they're afraid that, you know, about the South changing. And William Barber goes into this extensively about how, you know, in North Carolina specifically, you know, how they're standing up to powers 
in that state that want to resegregate the schools. So you have white and black people out there that are protesting this and how, you know, these tea partiers and extremists are basically, they thought that Trumpism, if you will, would, you know, also bear, a, you know, a major, major victory for them in North Carolina, and it didn't happen because Reverend Barber and a number of others, they started a movement, and they saw what was happening. And they started resisting even before Donald Trump announced his his bid for presidency. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm shaking my head because we've been over this. And this is not the first time in history that this has happened. And so what happened was when the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, was gutted, um, the Republicans, and, you know, that, you know, basically led the Board of Election in North Carolina, they took away 158 voting sites. You know, early voting sites were taken away. Um, you know, there were 158 less voting sites than what was available in 2014 and 2012. You know, and, and Reverend Barber talks about that. And he states, they lost the most, the worst voter suppression bill that they pushed in the courts. The court said that it was surgical racism. They lost on redistricting. They lost, you know, basically the courts um, have now demanded that we have to redraw lines and have a new election next year with the legislature. They lost the governor's race, the secretary of state's race, the auditor's race, the attorney general's race, and the Supreme Court became more progressive with an African-American winning 76 of the 100 counties and winning by over 300,000 votes. That's the headline right there, people. And Dr. Barber also said, that it's a sign of things to come when we organize in the South. And so the governor and those extremists refused. They did everything they could. They even purged votes during the election. They lost again, and we forced votes to be put back on the books. So they have seen that they have tried everything, but when there is a movement of the people, a moral movement of the people, we can, in fact, change the South. And if you do that, you change the nation. And so now, with these losses, they are now engaging in this extreme power grab and policy grab. Let that soak in. Because we've been talking about this, and this is happening all over the country, and I need to speed this up. This is happening all over the country, and, you know, there's a reason for it. And, you know, last week, you know, we talked a little bit about this, and I mentioned um, Reconstruction last week and how, you know, the Reconstruction purposefully underdeveloped the black community. And so Dr. Barber, he talked about the first Reconstruction in the 1800s and how blacks and whites worked together, right? And it changed the South. 
And so you take that and, you know, you combine it with what we've talked about in regards to the racial hierarchy, how originally in the United States someone, you know, someone from Scotland will be considered, you know, a Scot or Scottish person. Someone from Ireland would be considered Irish, you know, and all of these different things, you know, they were considered a Dutch man and, you know, all of these things, right, and how that changed when they were offered to be included in the white Venn diagram and how they, when they found out that there were incentives to being white, how that they then went along with this particular hierarchy because that was not in place originally in the United States. And also when people come to the United States from other countries, they come over here and they get really confused about the racism in this country. And that's not to say that they don't experience racism or have racism in other countries. It's just that the format, the setup, the structure of it is a little bit different. And so, you know, I'm going to move on. He talked about the second reconstruction, which was the civil rights movement, right? And you had all of these, you know, changes, and he's talking about the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the War on Poverty, and he he takes it from 1954 to 1968, you know, and he, he... talks about the Southern strategy and, and, you know, Richard Nixon and all of these different people, right? You know, and we we have to remember to add FDR and the New Deal because I'm going to get to that later on and about how Newt Gingrich is basically bragging about how the New Deal and the programs that, that were put together under the New Deal that were successful, how they're getting ready to be dismantled, deconstructed, and gutted. Now, that should scare all of you because that includes Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. You know, that, that includes a number of things. You know, you see how they're, you know, basically, you know, um, basically gutting out unions as well. You need to pay attention, right? And so um, Reverend Barber, you know, I'll give you a quote here. And he said, and you know if you rule the South, if you can control the South, you control 171 electoral votes by just controlling the former 13 Confederate states. You control 26 senators in the U.S. Senate, which means you only need 25 from the other 37 states. You control 31% of the United States House of Representatives, which means you only need 20 from the other 37 states. And you control 13 governors and 13 general assemblies. That controls state boards of elections. So if you can break through that, you can fundamentally change politics. That is correct. And so, you know, he was talking about the pushback and the voter suppression and the redistricting because, you know, he believes that these extremists see the possibility of a third reconstruction. And so, you know, he talks about, you know, registering 30% of the African-American vote and unregistered voters in the South. And, you know, if you add that to whites and progressive whites and Latinos, you can change the South. 
And so that's where I was going with this last bastion. And I was going to talk about the last bastion of hope that many of these, you know, white supremacists and racists, you know, that, you know, they're trying to keep that stronghold on the South. But the world is changing. America is changing. And they're scared. But again, empathy is for white people, right? And so um, basically I'm going to read a quote here. And it says, and if you ever change that map and you ever gave deep down organizing that gets people to stop voting against their own interests, grown-up conversations about race and economics, and people began to see themselves as allies, blacks and whites, and no longer fear one another, then you have a third reconstruction. And so he was talking about how he thinks that we're in a birth you know, going through the birth pangs of, you know, a third reconstruction, right? And so he he said North Carolina is one of the places that's pointing to it. And Virginia, and we all know the fuckery that comes out of Virginia, you know, and I talk about Virginia a lot because usually bullshit starts in Virginia and makes its way through the rest of the South. But, you know, if there, you know, gaps are being closed. So pay attention. You know, you know, Ronald Reagan won the, won the South by leaps and bounds. Donald Trump didn't. Dr. Barber, Reverend Barber, attributes that to the organizing that's taking place in the South. So he really believes that this third reconstruction is coming into being. And I just wanted to tell you about that because I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. I want you to research it. I want you to go out and talk about it with one another. It's extremely important that you do so because, you know, we're in. We're in for a whole bunch of shit, and it's on its way. And I'm going to post an article that's titled, North Carolina Reckons with This Jim Crow Past. Again, North Carolina Reckons with This Jim Crow Past, and that's in the Atlantic. And again, you know, as I stated, empathy is for white people. Now, I can really drill down on this a lot, but I'm not going to do that today. Just like last week's show, You know, I had planned to take that show in a totally different direction until I saw Walter Scott's mom's press conference and, you know, the people testifying in the Dylan Roof case. And for all, you know, for those of you who aren't paying attention, Dylan Roof was, you know, convicted, you know, found guilty of, you know, hate crimes and all of these things, just found guilty all across the board. So, you know, that's a wonderful thing that he was found guilty. But what I find, you know, most offensive is, you know, he wants them to take the death penalty off the table. So you want the death penalty taken off the table after you killed all of these black people. 
and the U.S. government still refuses to call it domestic terrorism. But walking down the street with a poster board saying, I am a man, I am a woman, black lives matter, women are equal, that's domestic terrorism. That's how it's being categorized in this country. They want no dissent, no political dissent. And there's a reason why Donald Trump was put in office, right? And so the same thing that gave us Donald Trump gave us Dylan Roof. And I want you guys to go out and look at that article up. What gave us Trump gave us Dylan Roof by Jamel Bowie. And I think it was over in Slate. And, you know, you know, Trump, his mantra was basically he wanted to make America great again, right? And Dylan Roof, you know, he played into that, again, you know, the myth of the invincibility of white supremacy. And, you know, there's a reason why you hear a lot of black people, people of color, talking about mass media and what you see in these movies and all of that. Because if you pay attention and you notice, in a lot of these movies, you know, one white man is the hero, and he comes to save the, to save the day. He saves humanity, particularly white humanity. And it seems as though Dylan Roof, in his thinking, kind of played into that because basically he was stating that, you know, that there's, there are no real skinheads and no real KKK and all of these things. And he said, and I quote, well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. I alone can fix it, right? And that's part of the article from Jamel Bowie, so that's why I want you to read it. But, you know, you, we saw him do it. We saw that couple in Vegas do it when they, you know, started shooting up everybody. And, you know, unfortunately, you have a lot of white people who have bought into this propaganda and and they're playing into the myth of the invincibility of white supremacy, of white power, white nationalists, whiteness being centered. And as a result of this, this is what we're, we're dealing with today. This is what has created Donald Trump and Dylan Roof. That is what has created this so-called populism movement. You know, if you go and you read the article from Democracy Now! about Dr. William Barber, he talks about populism and fusion. So that's a very important part of the article, and I would encourage you to read it. And so, you know, um, Jamel Bowie says, "There's," and I'm quoting, there is no causal relationship between Trump and Roof, no tangible link between the two events. From a certain view, this means they're unrelated, but that view is too narrow. Look at what radicalized Roof, at least in his own telling, propaganda from, from white supremacist groups like the Council of Conservative Citizens, forums of white nationalists, and anti-Semites, a narrative that told him he was oppressed 
a victim of diversity in a nation overrun by black crime. At the church, say survivors, roof exploded in grievance. Y'all are raping our women, he reportedly said. Y'all are taking over the world. And so last week when I was talking about this, and, you know, in, in particular, you know, what he's saying here about white women being raped, ironically, when that happened, you had a number of white feminists who came out and told white men in articles and blogs that, you know, they don't speak for them. And, you know, they don't speak for, you know, <laughs> you know, for, for you know, who they're sleeping with or not sleeping with and, and what's best for them. And so I need for you all guys to understand how all of this shit is tied together. Yet 51% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And this is why, you know, a lot of black women feel as though the white feminists have betrayed them. You know, that and a number of other factors in that particular equation. But, you know, this is very real. You know, this is real. This is happening on a daily basis. I mean, you know, there are there are a lot of things that are not necessarily reported in the mainstream news. You know, there have been more school shootings. There have been more, you know, domestic terrorist events. They're just not all reported, right? And so when you have Dylan Roof here, and again, I'm still pointing to the Jamel Bowie article, and, you know, he's talking about how Dylan Roof, you know, um, basically characterized black Americans. And, you know, he he painted us as being violent and dangerous, right? And Jamel Bowie talks about how that's only a few steps away from Donald Trump's depiction of black communities and those communities being violent and, you know, and, and it threatens the safety of the entire nation, according to Donald Trump, right? And, oh, yeah, he also thanks the intelligent blacks for not voting. He feels that they must have had some type of faith or belief in him, you know, to not go out and vote. And so it's really interesting. So I'm going to quote from Jamel Bowie's article again, and he quotes this from Donald Trump, and it says, poverty, rejection, horrible education, no housing, no homes, no ownership, crime at levels nobody has seen, said Trump, painting a dystopian picture of black life for a nearly all-white crowd of rallygoers in Ohio. You can go to war zones in countries that we're fighting, and it's safer than living in some of our inner cities, end quote. Let that sink in. Because, see, the stage is being set. You know, we're going to have to deal with a lot of this shit in the next four years. You know, you have people out here already saying that they don't believe that Trump will win in 2020. Well, I mean, not 2020. Yeah, 2020. And I'm saying you didn't think he would win in 2016 either. So you need more people. We're not necessarily believing the shit that's coming out of their mouths. But, um, yeah, y'all, go 
go, go, go and read. Um, there was an article. I'm going to backtrack. So I do want you to go out and read, but there's so much happening here. I want you guys to go out and also read the article that specifically talks about Newt Gingrich and his take on the gutting of the New Deal, right? And I'm looking for the article in my list here because I want to tell you the title of the article and where you know where you can find it and go look it up. So the title is Gingrich Brags That Republicans Are Coming for Everything FDR Accomplished. And this was in Think Progress. So again, Gingrich Brags That Republicans Are Coming for Everything FDR Accomplished. And what I want you all to understand is that the New Deal, in order for the New Deal to pass, the Republicans, which was the party of black people then, they had to make deals with Democrats, also called the Dixiecrats, in order to have you know the New Deal passed. And so that is when you really get into the language of states' rights and why the money was passed down to the states to administer. You know, there's a lot, you know, behind that. That was their way of being able to continue to discriminate against, you know, black people. And, you know, I want you to go and look that up. But, you know, what's so interesting about it is the people that benefited the most from the New Deal are white people then and now. But for some odd reason, a lot of white people believe that their disability and Social Security is different than the <laughs> than the welfare and the disability and the Social Security that black people have. And it's the same. They're all considered entitlement programs by certain factions of the white community. You know, those same factions feel as though there should not be any type of social safety net. So white folks, you know, like I pointed out that article in a National Review by Kevin Williamson earlier this year in in which he excoriated the working class and poor whites. It's going to be more of that coming down because at the end of the day, you know, some of these, you know, elitist whites, You know, when they say they don't see color, for a couple of them, you know, it goes beyond seeing color. They see poverty, and they hate poor people, and they feel that poor people are a drain on society. It's dragging the society down. This is how they see you. And so I'm going to take a couple of quotes here from that article with Newt Gingrich from Think Progress. And it says here that basically referring to this specific moment in history when Republicans are about to take control of all three branches of government. So that's the presidency, that's the, you know, the the Congressional House of Representatives and the Congressional Senate. Okay, and then also the Supreme Court. Right? 
to the three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive. So I got to make sure you understand that the Supreme Court is part of this and who Donald Trump plans on, you know, appointing. And so, you know, he was talking about it. And so he said, and he was talking to the Heritage Foundation. Now, go look them up. You know, you really want your hairs to stand up. But he said that this is the third great effort to break out of the, you know, FDR model. Something profound is breaking in the old order and that a genuine revolution is building. You know, this is what Newt Gingrich is saying. And when he's talking about Donald Trump, and and basically, you know, he says Donald Trump is giving Americans permission to say Merry Christmas again. And for those that aren't familiar, this is because Republicans claimed that the liberals were, you know, basically forging a war on Christmas. And this is how they were able to suck a lot of religious people into this 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 big cauldron of fuckery that we're all simmering in, right? And so when Newt Gingrich, you know, he was talking about Ben Carson, and basically, you know, he kind of just blew them off and laughed at them, stated that Ben Carson is, quote, prepared to talk about morality, about discipline, about family, about the work ethic, end quote. Again, they are setting you up, and it's so interesting because they have John, not John Kerry, sorry about that, Rick Perry, and he wants to be, basically Trump is going to nominate him as Secretary of Energy, right? This is one of the the departments that, you know, Rick wanted to dismantle. And so it's really interesting because now they're going to have Ben Carson out here, you know, basically, you know, sermonizing the black community and morality, right, discipline, family, the work ethic. I hope you all see what's being set up. And so, you know, again, the language the language, you guys, is very important, and that's why earlier, you know, I didn't really get into it the way I really wanted to, but we have so many things to talk about, so many different topics that need to be addressed, and there were a couple of articles that I definitely want you all to read. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote an article and the title of it was, My President Was Black. Again, My President Was Black. This was in the Atlantic. And Tana Hasey was talking about President Barack Obama and the faith that basically Barack Obama has in white America or white people in general. And there was a rebuttal to that, right? And Dr. Tressie... McCottam, C-O-T-T-A-M, she wrote a rebuttal for that in the Atlantic because, you know, she was approached and, you know, they were wanting, you know, her opinion on this. So Tressie McMillan Cottom, C-O-T-T-O-M, and her article is entitled The Problem with Black, I'm sorry, The Problem with Obama's 
faith in white America. And she talks about the lived experiences of herself and her family, which many of us can identify with. And I posted it on my wall, but, you know, the part that I quoted when I posted it on my wall, you know, she was talking about how she was black and how she came from black people and in in the history and, you know, in addition to that, you know, the Southern blacks, right, and and what they've had to deal with and what they've come through and how we view white people and how we have a certain perception, right? But she's they're talking about lived experiences and how – Many of our foreparents, forefathers, descended from slavery, right? And it's it's a very well-written article. It's an excellent rebuttal. And for those, you know, please follow Tressie and, and her particular venues that she writes on because she puts out a lot of good work. But I felt that this article was the perfect rebuttal to um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article, which was a good article as well. So I want to make sure you understand that I enjoyed that article in addition to this one. But, um, you know, a lot of this is about projection, you know. So it's about white people's fears and their grievances, again, empathy is for white people. You know, um, in, in that because many of them feel that our issues or their issues, rather, are basically our problem. And the last line in that particular paragraph that I had um, pasted into my post, it says, to know our white is to survive without letting bitterness rot your soul. And so, you know, you know, looking at all of that, and it's hard. Let's not get it twisted. It's hard. And, you know, you have a number of people, this is why we talk about Forgiveness, and on last week's show and many other shows, you know, before last week, I talked about we don't have to forgive a damn thing. You know, and what angers me so much is when these atrocities are hoisted on black people, brown people, yellow and red people, we, you know, it is demanded that we forgive immediately. But again, there is no equivalent language for the white community. It is not demanded that they forgive. And so, again, empathy is for white people. You know, and it was so many good things in this article 
that Tressie wrote, and I'm going to read this part here. White voters allowed Barack Obama because they allowed him to exist as a projection of themselves. White people's attitudes, the contradictions of their racial identities and class consciousness made Obama. Obama did not make them. It didn't matter that Obama had faith in white people. They, they needed only to have faith in him in his willingness to reflect their ideal selves back at them, to change the world without changing them, to change blackness for them without being black to them, right? And so, you know, I have a lot of thoughts around that and a lot of thoughts about, you know, white people projecting themselves to Barack Obama and using this as a way to assuage themselves of some of the white guilt that many of them feel, right? And hoping that, you know, he can show the world, the America that they have built up and created in their mind. You know, a white America or an America that has transcended their horrible racist history. And it's not a thing of the past. We're still experiencing racism in this country, you know, and all around the world. You know, that show is coming up. The second show of the year, I'm going to be talking about a number of things. I've come up with so many great ideas I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to shuffle them around. You know, my first show, January 8th, I was going to talk about the New Negro Review and, you know, members of the Good Negro Club. But I think I'm going to push that back. I'm going to push it back because I do feel that we need to talk about globalism and this conservatism that is happening around the world, you know, in good conscience, I can't sleep on that. You know, it's like I read about it, do extensive reading about it, but I'm going to go ahead and share a lot of what I've read and, and some of my beliefs and my opinions, and that's exactly what it is. They're mine, you know, but, you know, that's why I encourage you all to go out because I want you to have your own. And so, you know, right now I'm sitting back and I'm looking, and like I said, empathy is for white people. And, you know, I read a couple of articles about Sarah Palin, and y'all, Sarah Palin is mad as hell, right? And now she's making comments about the Trump administration. It makes me wonder, you know, she's salty because, you know, she didn't get a department. She didn't get, you know, uh, an appointment to a department to destroy. And so, again, um, there is an article titled Heroin in the Heartland, right? And in that particular article, you know, it's talking about the war on drugs and how we should be more empathetic, more understanding, more compassionate. And it's pointing to white America, and the heroin, you know, we got to include meth and all of these things. 
and now how they're taking a softer, gentler approach and purview to the war on drugs. And again, empathy is for white people because these drugs, this addiction is ravaging the white community. And so now they're advocating for rehabilitation, for designating addiction as an illness and getting people help. But that was after they jailed a lot of black and brown people during their war on drugs. And here we go, double standards, right? And so, again, empathy is for white people, you know, and it talks about the power of white racial erasure, you know, and how it's omnipresent in that particular article, Heroin in the Heartland. And, and you know, the word white does not appear once in that particular segment even though it's focused entirely on drugs used by white people. And so it talks about it being racially tinged and gendered moral panic, transformers and stunt doubles. You know, it talks about the white imagination, right? You know, and again, you know, go and look up the white imagination. Go look that up. Um, you know, that would be an, an interesting research project for you guys. But, yeah, look up, look up the white imagination and, you know, what has evolved and, and how people of color suffer because of the white imagination. So, you know, for those of you who are out there, and again, you know, who fully understands your, you know, your white privilege. So I'm talking to white people. You know, if you check off boxes in any other category, you need to be worried about that too. If you're LGBTQ, if you're atheist, if you're poor, if you're disabled, if you're a woman, and the list goes on. If you are not a white, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, white man, landowner, you're kind of fucked in one way or another because they're getting ready to try to roll a whole bunch of shit back. You know, and so in that Democracy Now! article, when Reverend Barber was speaking, you know, he was talking about, you know, a number of things. And so, you know, he talks about the populism and the fusion. And so he said here, and I'm going to quote, and so when you have fusion, when you hold economic Race and economics together, I'm concerned, for instance, about the way some progressives are talking about this election. They keep talking about just an economic fix, or we just need to talk to white working poor people, but if you do not factor in race, 
and how, as Nell Painter said at a, at Princeton, the you would not have a Trump without an Obama. That President Obama's election represented a kind of inversion of a hierarchy in this country. And so what we have to wrestle with is what cost, for instance, many whites to vote for a candidate that actually says, and there are 8 million more white people that are poor than black, but they vote for a candidate that's against living wages. What causes many whites to vote for a candidate who says, I'm going to cut your health care, when 80% of the people who will lose their health care are persons that do not have a college degree, and 56% of them are white. I'll read that again. And 56% of them are white. What trumps common sense? That's the grown-up race policy question. And then he continued on and he said, now, if you can bridge that in a fusion and if you get black people and white people and Latinos to begin to see their issues together, if you can get people, for instance, the LGBTQ community to understand the same people against the LGBTQ community are the same people that vote against public education, the same people that vote against public education normally vote against health care. Same people against health care vote against living wages, and you can go on and on. Same people against living wages are normally against voting rights. And in state, if you can build from a, if you can build a from the bottom up indigenously led fusion coalition, you can have the kind of transformation we're beginning to see in North Carolina and the South. End quote. That is true. And so this is why I'm impressing upon you all to go out and to do your research and to get a better understanding of what's happening. Because, again, empathy is for white people. While the rest of us are expected to go along to get along, not to make any waves, to shut up, and to be seen and not heard, and only seen when, you know, they feel like seeing us, and we're in for a fight. We're in for a fight. (sighs) So, again, empathy is for white people. Go out and read. Go out and read. Research. Stand what's happening around you. And so, again, this is Kim from Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. All right? We are here to challenge you. And so, yeah, 10 seconds left. You know, maybe I should go into a little bit more, but it's been two hours. So, all right, you guys, you go on and you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And it's so much to talk about, so much to unpack, and we'll get to it. So, all right, y'all, you all take it easy. Enjoy your Sunday. Enjoy your week. Take care.